Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Thursday, August 17th, 2023. All right, first thing I want to mention today is that it is our fundraiser at antiwar.com and you can support us by going to antiwar.com slash donate. And if you like this show, if you listen to this show every day, this is how it's made. It's because I'm able to work for antiwar.com. And we're a very small operation. We're a nonprofit, so you could write off your donation. And you know, this is how we get by. We're entirely reliant on our readers and the listeners and viewers of this show. So please go to antiwar.com slash donate to support us. And you can see the different ways you can do that. Uh, PayPal, cryptocurrency, credit card, uh, if you want to set up matching funds, uh, lots of ways to do it. You could also set up a recurring monthly donation, which a lot of people do, and we really appreciate everyone that does that. So again, antiwar.com slash donate to help keep this show going. Uh, All right, so the first story at the top of antiwar.com today, the U.S. considers military solutions for Ukraine's shipping. So the Wall Street Journal reported on Tuesday that the U.S. is considering military solutions to protect shipments of grain leaving Ukraine's Danube River ports as an alternative to the Black Sea grain deal that Russia recently exited. So the journal cited an unnamed senior U.S. official based in Washington. I just want to read this excerpt from the report. This is definitely concerning to hear. Uh, It reads, quote, The U.S. is considering all potential options, including military solutions, to protect ships headed to and from Ukraine's Danube ports, the Washington official said, but declined to give specifics on those options or say what countries would be involved in them, end quote. So since Russia decided not to renew the grain deal, the war has significantly expanded into the Black Sea. Russia has been bombarding Ukraine's ports, including those on the Danube River, which are just across the waterway from NATO member Romania. So these ports are very close to Romania. This section of the Danube River acts as a border between Romania and Ukraine. Uh, I have, If you're watching here, I have a map that shows the Ukrainian port of Izmail, which is on the Danube River, which Russia has been bombing. And, you know, it's just according to, you know, I looked on Google Maps and just looked at the um, the distance and it's just over 1000 feet from Romania, from NATO territory. So there's definitely a chance of this thing really escalating. And there's been other escalations in the Black Sea from Ukraine. They've declared war on Russian commercial shipping. They say anything that Russia is moving in the Black Sea is a target. They targeted a Russian tanker with a sea drone attack. And then this past weekend, Russia fired warning shots at a commercial vessel that was headed to Ukraine, a cargo ship, and uh, Russian forces actually boarded the vessel. So things are continuing to escalate in this area. And this Wall Street Journal report said that the U.S. is in talks with Turkey, Ukraine, and other regional countries on an alternative grain deal that would involve increasing Ukraine's capacity to ship grain out of the Danube. Ships carrying Ukrainian grain would go to nearby ports in Romania, and then from there, the cargo would be shipped to its destination. So I guess the idea is 
get it over to Romania quick, and then the cargo would be leaving from there, so Russia uh, wouldn't target it or prevent it from leaving. I don't know exactly, but it's concerning, again, just to hear U.S. officials saying that military options are being considered because if the U.S. or any other NATO nation is involved in securing you know, safe corridors for ships leaving Ukrainian ports, it obviously would risk a direct clash between NATO and Russia. And I would suspect that if, you know, again, this official didn't clarify, but if the U.S. is considering this, um, as far as I know, the U.S. has not been sending ships into the Black Sea since Russia invaded. Leading up to the invasion, the U.S. significantly increased its naval presence in the Black Sea. That was something Russia wasn't too happy about. But there haven't really been U.S. ships operating in the Black Sea Recently, there's been U.S. surveillance flights uh, pretty frequently, but I would bet that they would try to lean on a NATO ally like Romania or maybe Turkey. Not sure if Turkey would go for this without Russia's consent, um, but that's how I suspect they would want to do it. But again, still, this just risks, you know, everything in this war risks uh, an escalation as this war is just growing outside of Ukraine. Um, so Pentagon spokeswoman Sabrina Singh, she was asked about the situation in the Black Sea on Tuesday and said that she did not have anything to announce. She said, quote, we've been very clear that we don't seek war with Russia and that this is a fight that we are helping support Ukraine in. But at this moment, I don't have any announcements to make when it comes to the Black Sea or any secure of helping ships move out, end quote. So while the U.S. is considering alternatives to the grain deal, the U.N. and Turkey are working to try and restore the original agreement with Russia. Moscow said that it would rejoin when it was satisfied with Western efforts to facilitate the export of Russian agricultural goods. And one of, one of Russia's main demands is to reconnect the Russian agricultural, agri, agricultural bank to the SWIFT payment system. That's the international U.S.-led financial uh, payment messaging system. So if the U.S. you know, and the West could ease sanctions to restore this grain deal, but they don't seem interested in that. Instead, it looks like they're eyeing uh, you know, escalations here. All right, so the next one here. Uh, the NATO official says that the comments on Ukraine ceding territory was a mistake. So a NATO official who sparked a backlash from Kiev for suggesting Ukraine could cede territory to Russia in exchange for NATO membership appeared to walk back his comments on Wednesday. So this is Stian Jensen. He is the chief of staff for NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. As I went over yesterday, he suggested Ukraine could cede territory in exchange for NATO membership. And, you know, it sparked a huge backlash. So he said on Wednesday, quote, my statement about this was part of a larger discussion about possible future scenarios in Ukraine, and I shouldn't have said it in that way. It was a mistake. It is completely Ukraine's independent right to decide, end quote. So a day earlier, Jensen said, quote, I think a solution could be for Ukraine to give up territory and get NATO membership in return, end quote. Um, so, you know, kind of backtracking, but I still think it's significant what he said. Um, you know, another thing that he said was that this was a discussion going on within NATO, and NATO officials kind of went to the media, you know, speaking anonymously, like, you know, they quote Western diplomats or 
unnamed U.S. officials, unnamed NATO officials are all going to the media trying to clean this up, saying that they're not talking about it. But I sus- I'm sure that they are. You know, if they're talking about realistic ways to end this war, Ukraine ceding territory is definitely um, how this is probably going to end. Um, so uh, I put one quote in here from a NATO source speaking to Ukrainian media, again, trying to clean this up. They said that they fully support Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity and basically said that the alliance is willing to support an open-ended conflict, saying that they would that they want to support Ukraine as long as necessary and that they're committed to achieving a just and lasting peace. And Russia's response to this was, you know, reiterating their position that one of their main demands for a settlement is Ukrainian neutrality as a primary motive for the invasion was Ukraine's alignment with NATO. Um, So Mikhail Galuzhin, he's a Russian deputy foreign minister. He reiterated that position and he also said it's necessary to, quote, recognize the new territorial realities, ensure Ukraine's demilitarization and denazification, the rights of its Russian-speaking citizens and national minorities in line with international law, end quote. Um, All right, so the next one here, Ukraine has no hopes to use F-16s this year. So Ukrainian officials said Wednesday that Kiev has given up hope that it will be able to use U.S.-made F-16 fighter jets this year as the training process is facing delays. So this is a Ukrainian Air Force spokesman, Yuri Inyat. He said, quote, it's already obvious we won't be able to defend Ukraine with F-16 fighter jets during this autumn and winter. We had big hopes for this plane that it will become part of air defense, able to protect us from Russia's missiles and drones terrorism, end quote. So President Biden gave the green light for European countries to deliver F-16s to Ukraine in the spring, but the training process has barely started. Excuse me. According to the Washington Post, the first batch of Ukrainian pilots will not finish their training until at least next summer. So only six pilots are taking part in the first round of training, which involves four months of English classes in Britain, then six months of combat training that will start in January. Another batch of pilots are expected to complete their training six months after the initial class. So only six pilots are going to be ready next summer. Um... And Valery Zelushny, the Ukrainian commander-in-chief, he's been, you know, complaining a lot about how NATO countries would never try to launch a counteroffensive like they are now without, you know, advanced fighter jets, without air superiority. And he's been demanding the F-16, along with a slew of other Ukrainian officials, they've been asking for it for quite a while. Um, What's interesting is that the Washington Post reported back in July that U.S. officials privately believe Western jets would not make much of a difference uh, in the current fight due to Russia's extensive air defenses. And, uh, of course, Russia has been warning strongly against the provision of F-16s, which would mark a significant escalation of U.S. and NATO support for Ukraine. One thing Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has noted is that they're capable of carrying nuclear weapons, and he said that Russia would view the jets as a nuclear threat. So that's definitely uh, concerning to hear a Russian official say. Um, All right, the next one here is from the Gray Zone, from Alexander Rubinstein. Zelensky holds court with Ukraine's most notorious neo-Nazi. 
So Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has uploaded a video to his Telegram channel showing him holding court with one of the most notorious neo-Nazis in modern Ukrainian history, and that is Azov Battalion founder Andrei Beletsky. So on August 14th, just an hour after Blinken announced another $200 million in military aid to Kiev, Zelensky published the video depicting what he called an open conversation with Ukraine's third separate assault brigade. Um, so I didn't know this that Rubenstein says here is that the brigade Zelensky was addressing is actually the newest iteration of the Azov Battalion. Which uh, So the Azov Battalion is you know this neo-Nazi militia that was formed in 2014 and was integrated into Ukraine's National Guard becoming the Azov Regiment. They did a lot of fighting in the early days, you know, in the Donbass War, throughout that war, but in the early days of the Russian invasion. And now, apparently, they've rebranded to the 3rd Separate Assault Brigade, and Zelensky was singing their praises and met with uh, Belitsky. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, this isn't controversial to say that, you know, he's a white supremacist or neo-Nazi, this guy. You just have to look, do a little digging into his past. And uh, Rubenstein gets into, you know, a lot of details here if you want to go uh, check out the article. Uh, he's known as the white leader, Beletsky. So, you know, they ignore this in Western media, the, the, the presence of, you know, Nazi, neo-Nazis in the Ukrainian military. And they... Uh, magnify that claim, you know, everywhere else, it seems like. Um, <clears throat> all right, so I want to take this moment to mention our sponsor for today's show, and that is the Expat Money Summit. And this is hosted by Mikkel Thorup, and his work is focused on helping people who want to move out of the country or get citizenship residency in another country as a backup plan. So you go to expatmoneysummit.com and you can reserve your free ticket. The summit is completely free. It's being held from October 2nd to October 6th. And the types of things that you can learn there, uh, again, are residencies and citizenship, wealth protection and tax planning, investing and diversification, the expat lifestyle, community and networking, and much, much more. Again, it's really the only event of its kind. It's a very unique um helpful thing that Mikkel focuses on and he's a listener of the show and a supporter of antiwar.com so go to expatmoneysummit.com you could also go through the link in the show notes and the youtube description again i think in this age with more and more people working from home working online this is you know a really valuable resource um, and i was on his podcast recently the expat money summit podcast and we were discussing, you know, the best place to, to be if World War III breaks out. And I think we landed on, you know, Latin America, South America. Um, seems kind of the less likely place to for a big conflict to break out, you know, when it comes to this great power competition that's being played out across the globe. Um, all right, so back into the news here. The next one, senators urge Biden to unload stolen Iranian oil. So a bipartisan group of senators is urging President Biden to facilitate the transfer of stolen Iranian oil that has been stuck on a tanker off the coast of Texas. So this is the Greek tanker Suez Rajan. It was seized by the U.S. government in April under the pretext of sanctions relief and was forced to sail to Texas instead of China. The tanker is carrying 800,000 barrels of Iranian oil, but U.S. companies are hesitant to discharge the cargo over fears of Iranian reprisals in the Persian Gulf, 
It has been stuck near Galveston, Texas since May 30th. So Senators Joni Ernst and Richard Blumenthal. Ernst is Republican. Blumenthal Blumenthal is a Democrat. So this is a bipartisan effort. And this is according to Reuters. They said several other members of the Senate and the House sent a letter to Biden telling him that sanctions would become ineffective if American companies were worried about Iranian retaliation. The letter reads, quote, It is imperative that the administration make clear that Iran and designated foreign terrorist organizations cannot prevent our government from carrying out legitimate law enforcement operations, end quote. So they asked for a briefing from the administration on the progress of discharging the oil. So the U.S. seizure of the Suez Rajan provoked the Iranian seizure of two tankers in the Persian Gulf. This was in the spring. And the U.S. has responded by beefing up its military presence in the waters, as I have been covering. And they're now considering placing armed troops on commercial vessels, which would risk a direct clash with Iran even more so than the current military buildup. So again, this is just an example of U.S. actions, you know, creating these tensions and then them trying to do things in response by sending the military over there. Um, So, you know, these members of Congress are just not happy that U.S. threats and sanctions aren't as, you know, effective as they uh, as they want them to be. All right. So the next one here, the U.S. rehearses casualty evacuations in the Pacific. So the U.S. Air Force last month conducted a drill rehearsing the evacuation of thousands of casualties in the Pacific as part of its preparations for a future war with China in the region. So these drills were part of Mobility Guardian, and they were held last month by the Air Force's Air Mobility Command. It involved six U.S. allies, Australia, Japan, Canada, France, Britain, and New Zealand. I went over these drills, some aspects of it before, but I thought this was interesting you know, this casualty evacuation, because I think it shows, you know, that if war does break out between the U.S. and China, a lot of Americans are going to die and get injured. So what's interesting is that the general in charge of Air Mobility Command, General Mike Minihan, he made headlines earlier this year for predicting that the U.S. would be at war with China by 2025 in a memo to his officers. So Air Force Times reported last week that the Air Force is rethinking how it would medically evacuate thousands of wounded American troops from the Pacific in a matter of weeks if the military sustained high casualties in a war with China. So war games conducted by Washington-based think tanks have predicted massive casualties in the first weeks of a conflict between the U.S. and China over Taiwan. The Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is an American think tank, which is, you know, if you look at their funding, I mean, they're funded by all sorts of governments, including the U.S. and Taiwan, and they're funded by tons of corporations, including, you know, the top arms makers. But in their war games, they believe that in three weeks, the U.S. will suffer about half as many casualties as it did in 20 years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan. So this is something I think a lot of people don't think about is the human cost for the U.S. in this future war. And according to the Air Force, during the Mobility Guardian drills, the U.S. and allied forces conducted the successful deployment of two specialized aero medical evacuation teams operating on a C-130. And they say that they effectively moved 48 patients on six unregulated missions. Uh, I put a picture in uh, from the U.S. military that shows Japanese 
uh, military personnel working with U.S. airmen, uh, you know, loading a simulated, you know, casualty victim onto a C-130. So these mobility guardian drills also involve the testing of Rapid Dragon, which is a weapon system that allows C-130 and C-17 cargo planes to launch long-range cruise missiles that are normally fired by large bombers, which has a huge impl- implication. And what Minihan uh, said about this is that this means, you know, what he calls American ad- adversaries have to view military cargo planes as a threat. And the U.S. has a ton of C-130s, and so does all the U.S. allies in the region. Um, so again, just all sorts of implications. All right, uh, the next one here, Azerbaijan military aid waiver delayed amid review. So this is interesting. This article is from Politico. Um, The Biden administration appears to be slow walking the renewal of a longstanding military assistance program to Azerbaijan amid growing warnings of ethnic cleansing in the breakaway region of Nagorno-Karabakh. So every year since 2002, the White House has issued a waiver to provide aid to Azerbaijan despite its campaign against Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an ethnic Armenian enclave within the, you know, what they call the internationally recognized borders of Azerbaijan. So that waiver has previously been completed before the summer, but this year it is still pending halfway through August. Officials have offered no explanation for the delay, but it coincides with increasing concern that Azerbaijan is in, is responsible for a worsening humanitarian crisis in Nagorno-Karabakh, which they certainly are. Uh, they've been blockading, you know, the, basically the one road that goes in there. And this is something I probably should, you know, be covering more um, this area. So Azerbaijan has hardened its stance against the ethnic Armenian population there in recent months, blocking the entry of commercial and humanitarian vehicles and shutting off the region's access to gas and electricity. That's a blockade. And the U.N. Security Council will consider an appeal from Armenia to respond to the worsening situation on Wednesday. Um, So the delay in issuing the authorization also comes as the Biden administration is pursuing a long, elusive peace agreement between the two countries. People are saying that some sort of agreement could be close uh, between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, But we'll see. And so, you know, when it comes to this situation, the U.S. uh, isn't doesn't really openly take a side, but they do give Azerbaijan, you know, significantly more military aid than Armenia. Um, so, and if you think of, you know, any other situation where Azerbaijan clearly is, you know, the aggressor here, even though, you know, some might argue that Nagorno-Karabakh is within their borders, but, you know, this is a dispute going back decades. And I know Justin Romando used to write a, a lot about this. And what he said is that, you know, these borders of Azerbaijan and Armenia are, you know, were drawn by the Soviets, were drawn by Stalin. Um, and they actually put Nagorno-Karabakh within Azerbaijan to kind of stoke this ethnic conflict. So they were busy, you know, so they wouldn't revolt against the Soviet Union, um, which is interesting. And there was the war in 2020 that Azerbaijan launched against Nagorno-Karabakh, and they gained a lot of territory. And now there's been this blockade going on for a while. Um, <clears throat> all right, the last one here, Niger capital residents support calls for mass recruitment. So this is from Africa News, and it says that residents of Niger's capital, Niamey, are calling for the mass recruitment of volunteers to assist the army in the face 
of a growing threat by the West African regional bloc ECOWAS, which says it will use military force if the junta does not reinstate deposed President Mohamed Bazoum. So basically, they speak to residents, people living in this capital city of Niger, saying that they don't want ECOWAS intervention and that they back the uh, junta, the military coup. And, you know, I'm not sure when it comes to overall how the people in Niger feel about this junta, but from what I've seen, there have been pro-coup protesters. I haven't seen many uh, any protests, you know, for to reinstate Bazoum. So it seems like uh, there might be a lot of popular support for this coup. And it's just interesting to see people saying that, you know, they want to raise an army to fight off ECOWAS. Uh, so again, this is just another sign that this could really turn into a big regional conflict. Um, all right, that's it for the news for today. Please go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Medea Benjamin and Nicholas J.S. Davies. U.S.-backed role of the dice leaves Ukraine in worse crisis. One from David Stockman, how Woodrow Wilson set the stage for World War II. One from uh, Elena Johns and Colleen Moore, North Korea, why can't we just talk? That's over at Responsible Statecraft. One from Lori Calhoun at the Libertarian Institute, Cluster Bomb, Catastrophe. And one from Daniel L. Davis, The Hard Reality, Ukraine's Last Gasp Offensive Has Failed. That's over at 1945. Uh, But that is everything for me for today. Uh, Again, if you can, please help us out with our fundraiser, antiwar.com slash donate. Another big way you could help us out is by spreading the word, telling people about this show, and antiwar.com. Um, I'll be back tomorrow with some more news for you. Thanks for listening.